Libros Schmibros is a podcast exploring the people, books, movies, and ideas that Angelinos care about in a thoughtful way that even New Yorkers can understand. We're coming to you from Libros Schmibros, our nonprofit bilingual lending library in Boyle Heights, on the west coast of the country and the east bank of the mighty Los Angeles River. Hi there, I'm Stephanie Burt, and I am very happy to join David Kippen and Libros Smibros, the video podcast. That's what we're calling it, right? Uh, it um, is, although in some instances there will only be audio, but go ahead. Okay. The video optional, uh, audio always, cast, as it were, or cast party, if you prefer, <laughs> of the nonprofit lending library of Boyle Heights. Hi, David. Hi, Stephanie. Uh, you did that so well, I think I may just like let all of our guests uh, introduce and even interview themselves. You are absolutely a natural. Oh, no, you have to interview me. I can't interview myself. Okay, if we must. Luckily, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. May I ask? Uh -huh. <laughs> it's true. May I ask about your backdrop, considering, you know, mine is certainly one that I'm proud of. Uh, what is it? Absolutely. Uh, this is, uh, she now goes by Kate at the time she was Kitty Pride of the X-Men, uh, <laughs> and uh, her pet dragon Lockheed, drawn by Paul Smith, lettered by Tom Orkazowski, scripted by Chris Claremont, and I honestly forget who the colorist is. Uh, Shame on you! I think it's Lynn Wine, but I wouldn't swear to that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's me. <laughs> well, blessings on you for giving each of the creators uh, their own uh, props, because I'm a big believer in singling out as many people as possible for collaborative art forms. I wrote a whole book about screenwriters, so it's a bugaboo of mine, too. Um, yeah. And since you mentioned the X-Men, you've written rather eloquently, I think, about the idea of fandom. Um, something that I gave, actually published an essay about with regard to Thomas Pynchon, whom I'm kind of annoying on the subject on. What does fandom mean to you? So that is reminding me to try reading Against the Day, which I'm sure I would love. You would, um, though it's not, only if you've read Pynchon before, it's the wrong place to start. Um, wait, so what's, other than Lot 49, what's the right place to start? Um, actually, a short story called The Secret Integration. It appears in the collection Slow Learner. It's the perfect bunny slope. Okay. But you have a lot to learn about being interviewed, and uh, because obviously we flipped it around uh, to me. Let's stop doing that. I, I, like, I like learning things, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about... So talk so, about fandom. So sometimes I just wake up confused by what seems to me a contingent, it doesn't have to be this way, fact about the different way that things I love for similar reasons have been received. Because here are some things that I love reading. The novels of Catherine Valente, mm. uh, the X-Men comic books that have been written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Paul Smith, uh, the later X-Men comic books that have been written by, uh, among others, Marjorie Liu and Leah Williams and Sean and McGuire. And I should add Jonathan Hickman. Of course you should. Uh, and drawn by a, a host of terrific people. Um, fan fiction. Mm -hmm. 
in, in set in various universes by various hands, most of whom no one knows their real names. Middlemarch by George Eliot. Uh, Paradise Oops. Lost and especially Paradise Regained. Really? Milton. Oh yeah, Paradise Regained is amazing. Um, Who was the colorist not, on that, by the way? Ooh, um, so Paradise <laughs> Regained is actually black and white. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, the colorist on the collected poems of Richard Lovelace mm-hmm. was actually Thomas Randolph. <laughs> you know who does really, you know what 17th century poet does some really good coloring? Tell me. Catherine William Phillips. Blake. Catherine Catherine. Phillips. Wow. Oh, William Blake's great, but he wasn't a 17th century guy. No, that's true. Um, anyway. <laughs> I want you on my pub quiz team. I love pub quizzes. Of course you do. Uh, that was, that, sadly, that was my high school sport. I was a high school quiz bowl athlete. Really? How good? What? How good were you? How far did you go? I think if you tell someone what your high school sport is, there's a strong social rule against saying how good you are. Uh, well, no need to violate it today. What was your best category? Poetry? Um... Either poetry or chemistry. Wow. But the version that we played didn't divide categories up that way. Chemistry. No wonder you, you like Thomas Pinchon. Um, I, I, I suppose I should say by way of uh, tardy preamble that as if there weren't reason enough to talk to you any day of the week, you are the author of Advice from the Lights, which is the poetry collection that's been selected by the city of Los Angeles this year as its Big Read book. The Big Read being a program sponsored by the NEA, which I actually helped midwife when I was there. Um, Thank you. Well, of course. And it encourages cities and towns to come together and read and celebrate and explore um, a single book. Um, And you've been on the Big Read list for a year or two now. What have been your experiences with it? Oh. We'll go back to the question about things I like to read and the different oh, ways in which they are received. Because you asked me to talk about the idea of fandom. I did. I just um, wanted to get that. Which excites me, but I, I should talk about the big read. Mm-hmm. We can interlace these topics. They, they <laughs> match together. So uh, this is the City of LA adoption is the first big read event I've done on this scale. Uh-huh. And I'm obviously super flattered and I hope not to disappoint anyone <laughs> and uh you know i just hope not to let people down uh the, the the big read is an immense honor and it it is a hypothesis or a bet about something that i'm sometimes sort of nervous about which is that the poems that i write and send out into the world speak potentially not just to some people but maybe to a lot of people uh, may, and maybe a lot of people who don't already read a lot of poetry for fun. And I, I want that to be true, but I've never had an institution decide that that could be true at this scale before. So, you know, I hope, the, I hope you were right to, to pick me. Well, anecdotally, all the early signs are favorable, and I know Aww. other outfits are looking forward to Zooming with you, but I very much wanted to be the first. Um, and now... Um, yes, by all means, uh, double back and, and answer the fandom question more fully, if you'd like. Sure. So these are all, all 
works of verbal or verbal and visual art. Um, and I can, you know, continue with musical works. Uh, I really love the new Halsey album. Uh, I really like the music of Francis Poulenc. Um, <laughs> although I don't understand it as much as I understand Halsey or uh, with another good example, Dessa. Um, and it's almost a matter in terms of, of how I feel about these works of art, of just how I feel when I wake up in the morning um, or who I happen to talk to first, whether I feel like writing 5,000 words about why the new Halsey record is great or, and you know, how, to, how to understand and interpret it and what I get out of it the 10th time through, uh, or 5,000 words about uh, you know, why I like Alfred Lord Tennyson's In Memoriam. They're all works of art to me, and they each have their own rules and internal traditions and, you know, affordances, things they're good at. But the history of how people talk about these works and where and to whom and how people are rewarded or not rewarded for talking about these works is very different, shockingly different. A group of, if you want to find a group of people who really enjoy talking about 17th century poetry and have read a lot of it and have developed a specialized vocabulary for that, you might end up trying to go to grad school. <laughs> On the other hand, if you're really good at it and you're lucky and you're good at networking and, and you work hard enough, you might end up having that be your job and being somewhat insulated from market forces. Um, and with uh, X-Men comics, it's almost the reverse. Um, when I want to have a conversation with 20 people about a contemporary poet that's really going on in real time and that I'm constantly learning from, uh, I have to take a class or teach a class. Um, but it's my job to teach such classes and there's a tremendous institutional knowledge base going back decades about how to do that. When I want to have a conversation about what's going on right now in X-Men comics. I am a member of a couple of different uh, online chat groups, which you might call part of a fandom. And I'm gonna stretch out here and I'm gonna close the <laughs> window because it's just started raining. Ah, and I will listen for that. You get the sound of rain. I like uh, the sound of rain. Oh, yeah. yeah, especially you get more sunshine and less rain than we do, but it was getting a little loud. Um, but so, so when the group of people who are committed to a set of works of art is called a fandom, it is informal, it is not organized around lines of prestige. It's likely that there are people who have jobs creating the proprietary content that sparked the fandom, uh, but the people who are 
the authoritative critics and who are leading the discussion, that's probably not their job. They're probably doing it out of love. Uh, there may be an anti-commercial imperative to the kinds of discussion that go on. And there's certainly, if it's the kind of fandom that produces a lot of transformative works, fan art, fan fiction, cosplay, going to be an anti-commercial imperative to the transformative works that come out of that, which circulate in the gift economy. So tell me, do the, mm -hmm. do the, do the people you interact with in fan groups for the X-Men know about your day job? Do they know that you are a poet and a teacher and a critic and a scholar? It's not a secret. Uh, they don't, you know, I don't like keeping secrets, uh, but you don't lead with that. <laughs> Any more than you go to your favorite ice cream store and say, I would like some black cherry vanilla ice cream, uh, you know, for curbside delivery. And by the way, I teach at Harvard. That just makes you a jerk. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll bear that in mind. You don't, you don't lead with that. But no, my identity is not a secret. Um, a, a, thing, a thing that I would like to do is to get more of the people who are already deeply committed to popular culture works of art that I love into some of the more high culture, more rarefied works of art, especially the ones in verse that I also love. How do you go about that and how are you doing? How, how's it coming? Uh, well, if you stay tuned long enough, there's going to be a chat book. Oh. Uh, probably a, a, like a staple bound book. Um, uh, that is entirely poems that have uh, comic book connections. Um, really? And you might, you might say that Don't Read Poetry, a book about how to read poems, is an effort to do that. Let's see if I can put it in front of me without, there we go, and without having it green Thank screen. Thank you. I would um, hold up mine, but it's in the next room. That's okay. So this book, I'm going to bury my nose in it. Ah, there we go. Take my nose out of the book. Uh, Don't Read Poetry, a book about how to read poems, is a book for people who aren't already reading lots and lots of poetry the way that I do, uh, trying to say, here's what I value. Here are some fallacies that it would be good to recognize and overcome if you want to get into this art form, which, by the way, might be for you if you don't think it is, because it has more in internal variety and more emotional possibilities and more means of connection to more readers than we think if we only encounter it in school. I would like more people to try out some of the poets and, and the poems that I, I really like. Uh, conversely, I would like people to give my favorite works of uh, lower prestige uh, media and media of more recent invention uh, the respect that I think they deserve without uh, creating an academic hierarchy or reinforcing an academic hierarchy in ways that the fandom resents because the self-organizing, anti-commercial, anti-hierarchical and mutually supportive properties of fandoms at their best, on which I am not an authority, just an enthusiastic participant. Uh, those are qualities that can't be replicated or supplanted by even the best intentioned, stable, but hierarchical institutions. I can tell how good a teacher you are from here. 
Um, and we'll get into, I, I hope, each of those identities, you as a teacher, you as a poet, you as a critic, and maybe even hear from you in a couple of those modes, specifically uh, poetry and even criticism, which I don't think gets read aloud nearly often enough. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, you are a poet first and foremost, I think. So uh, would you like to read something, maybe even the title? Sure. Part I, don't, I don't know what I am first and foremost, but I certainly, uh, you know, enjoy reading poems. Um, since we're talking about the conflict between my public and my less public roles, uh, maybe I should read the first poem in Advice from the Lights, which is about the frustration behind those conflicts. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also, since this is a uh, Pacific Time audience, a poem uh, that, that has a little bit of a, a joke against uh, East Coast bias. <laughs> East Coast bias, I never heard of such a thing. <laughs> Jump on as, it. As a, as a former resident of St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, I am I'm familiar with East Coast bias from both sides. <laughs> and I, I, do, I, I, I do love living where we live now. We're in the right town. We're in the right metro area for us. Uh, but I do miss Minnesota. Gotcha. And that's Boston, I guess we haven't mentioned yet. Yes, I live outside Boston. Gotcha. Um, well, by Belmont. I, I wrote a book called Belmont. About did indeed. Living in Belmont. Um, there's also a joke about the Merchant of Venice, but that's, that's another topic. So this is the first poem in Advice from the Lights. Ice for the ice trade. Everybody wants a piece of me. I have been weighed and measured tested and standardized throughout my young life. It happens to everyone or to everyone with my ability. Now I live quietly and mostly in the dark amid sawdust and sheer or streaky wooden surfaces. My role when I reach maturity may be to help people behave more sociably and reduce the irritations of summer, or else to make it easier to eat. For reasons I cannot fathom, I weep when it rains. My handlers keep me wrapped in awkward cloth. They will not let me touch my friends or show any curves. They have taught me how to shave. A few twigs and dragonfly wings got caught near the center of me long ago. They serve to distinguish me from others of my kind, along with some bubbles of air. I am worth more when I am clear. When I am most desirable, you should be able to see yourself through me. Some of my distant relatives will probably never go far because they are too irregular or opaque. Many of us will end on a cart. I, on the other hand, have had my work cut out for me by so many gloves and tongs, pallets and barges, poles and planks, that I am sure I will go to New York. There, people who own the rights to me will give elaborate thanks to one another and go on to take me apart. <laughs> I love that. 
So thank tell, you so much. Um, tell me, if I'm reading this right, how did it occur to you to tell to to narrate a semi-autobiographical poem, also from the perspective of a an ice cube? Well, it's a whole block of ice. A block of ice. Forgive me, a block of ice. Back from when when before you know before there were were uh, refrigerator colons. Um, so. Monica Yoon, uh, Y-O-U-N, who mm-hmm. I hope you'll have on your show at some point, who's a really terrific, terrific poet. Ooh. Uh, just very serious and thoughtful and original and, and deep. Um, lives part of the year in Coxsackie, New York, mm. which is in between Westchester County and Albany if you know, if you picture the Hudson River in your mind, uh, and you don't have to. Sorry, um, at least that, now that's your East Coast bias showing, but okay. Is, the Hudson River runs uh, from the Vermont-New York State border, if that helps, all the way down to New York along the eastern border of New York State. Mm-hmm. Um, and it runs past uh, John Ashbery's former home, um, and uh, it runs past Albany, uh, and then it goes through the northern suburbs of New York, uh, and then it goes to New York City. And before it gets to the suburbs, it goes through a small town called Coxsackie. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is where Monica and uh, her her kid live for part of the year. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting town because partly under the influence of Hudson, New York, and Bard College, it is a town that's becoming a place where artists move. But before that, it was sort of an upstate New York town where the economy was not doing great. And before that, it was an important place for the ice block trade, where ice would be cut on the upper Hudson and on Lake Champlain and sent down the river on barges to be cut up and rewrapped and reparceled for use in New York City in the late 19th and early 20th century. And I got pretty interested over the last, you know, six or seven years in writing poems in the voice of animals and talking objects. And I thought maybe once I learned about the ice trade in Coxsackie, that maybe an ice block would be a good way to speak about me. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's me. <laughs> gotcha. And, and how did it, I'm curious, how did it come to be the first poem in the collection? We talk a lot, I think, when we discuss poetry about the form of the poem, but not so much about the form of the collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, so partly it's because my friends liked it a lot. Um, the, the New Yorker liked it, which was a, a vote of confidence when Paul Muldoon <laughs> was, was editing it. Um, and partly because it's a poem about having a lot of roles at once. Uh, it's a poem that's about being visible and about feeling like you've been concealed or under wraps for a while mm-hmm. and then becoming visible. And it's to some extent a poem about uh, you know who I am as a poet among other poets, and about my role as a you know very minor public figure, 
But it's also, of course, a trans poem. So if you go in saying, hey, Stephanie Burt, Harvard critic, uh, semi-public, obscure public figure, you, you get that at the gate. You don't get someone who's trying to conceal the rest of her life. Uh, but if you also go in looking for trans girl coming out stories, hmm. you get that. Because <laughs> uh, this is absolutely uh, a book that asked to be read, among other things, as uh, trans girl coming out stories. And um, you're, you're such a good explicator of um, other people's poetry. Aw, thank you. Oh, absolutely. Now, now, if you were to teach your own poem, or if you were to coach somebody wanting to teach this, mm-hmm. poem, how would you go about it? So that is, I'll, you know, I'll do it if asked, but that's awkward because I know what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. But you never know if you've landed, right? Like if you're, let's say you're Lindsay Whalen, who's my favorite basketball player, mm-hmm. and you're trying to show somebody how to make a no-look pass or uh, how to draw a foul when you're going in for a layup. Um, you know when that works because you get the assist or, you know, you get the and one. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, I should really be giving you an L.A. Sparks player for that. <laughs> uh, I'm a fan. Um, okay, okay. Do you, do you follow the Sparks? Um, not as closely as you do, apparently, but um, I will okay. make a point of it. It's okay. Um, anyway, if you're someone where it's, it's, it's visible and unmistakable, how you succeed at a thing when you succeed at it, then if, if people ask, you know, how do you do that? Will you please show me how to do that? It's flattering, but it's not necessarily awkward. But with works of art, you never really know if, you've, if you succeed. So I can talk about, if I'm teaching a poem by Laura Kaczynski or, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks or Richard Corbett, I can talk about how the poem affects me as a reader. And I know that at least one reader responds to the poem in that way. But if I wrote the thing, I don't really know. Uh, so I can just talk about what I'm trying to do and say, well, I hope it lands. Do you ever read people who've completely misunderstood a particular poem? What's that like? Uh, you mean by me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm honestly, um, I'm usually just grateful for the attention. And I don't know <laughs> that I've gotten so much critical attention that I've seen people who really got something wrong. I do find people who read my recent work and don't notice that it rhymes, which it often does, and that's, that's kind of odd. Um, I, I find people who, who use inexact language, who say something's in blank verse when it's in free verse, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I don't... Um, and I've, I have occasionally been attacked, which is really fun. <laughs> There is a, the longest thing that's ever been written about me was a piece in the New Republic mm-hmm. in about 2013 or 2014, which was tremendously fun to read. Uh, and I'm going to closely paraphrase the, the title. It called me Poetry's Biggest Fangirl <laughs> and uh, complained that I didn't have uh, high enough standards and too much of what I wrote was appreciative mm-hmm. and that I was making arguments about how I read other people's poems and uh, why I liked them and how I thought they worked rather than sort of evaluating them on a scale of one to 10, like a you know, judging gymnastics or something. Uh, and it was, it was, I really actually felt uh, seen that this, the, this very smart writer, and this was the New Republic back when it was a much 
more, I guess, small C conservative magazine than it is now. Mm -hmm. This is a writer who had actually seen what I was trying to do uh, and thought I was kind of being a wuss. <laughs> who was the writer? Yeah, surely yeah. you remember the name. Oh, geez. Um, don't. We, what? I just, you, you, you can look it up. You oh, can okay. look it up. I, it's just if anybody had written a long piece in the New Republic uh, um, af going after me, I would probably remember it. It's like it's like being. In no, a I remember the piece. I remember the piece. You can look. You can look it up. It's not okay. long. Um, it was very well written, but it was that was the only time that I really felt like someone almost got me wrong. In mm. fact, uh, the writer got me right. I uh, just didn't like what I was doing, but he didn't understand William Carlos Williams, and that made me sort of annoyed. This was someone who did not understand the way that the, the free verse music of William Carlos Williams, which is one of the great sonic achievements in American history, for, to my mind, worked. Um, but I, I, I digress. Uh, me and my poems and me interpreting my own poems, if you ask, I will walk you through what I was trying to do, but since I wrote the poem, we'll never really know whether I've done it. Uh, and I'll walk you through Ice for the Ice Trade a little bit, if you want, quickly. Um, uh, sure. Okay, uh, it rhymes. Um, it's composed of a series of double meanings. Um, everything in it applies both literally to the block of ice that's been sawed out of the upper Hudson River and is now being moved down to either be discarded or be carved into ice cubes or be used for refrigeration, uh, either in New York City or someplace, you know, south of Albany and north of New York. Um, and all of the things that uh, the ice block says about itself are true either figuratively or literally of someone who's trying to make their way in the literary world um, or of a trans girl who's you know, not entirely out to herself or who her friends yet. Mm. So it's a series of puns and also a whole lot of irregular rhymes and some, some one-liners. You make me want to read it yet another time, which um, is, I guess, as important a function of criticism uh, as, as I can think of. Um, we, we've basically just done what it encourages in the last line, which is we've taken you apart, though you can never take a poem completely apart. Um, well, the, um, the, the wonder, well, wonderful thing about works of art is that when you take them apart, they're still together. Yeah. Now, um, I'm looking at my copy <clears throat> of another book of criticism of yours. I'm looking at the poem of you, is you, and as oh. I- Oh, thank you. You're really reading books by me. Thank you so much. It's really flattering. What do you think the big read is for? And actually, I'm taking this as an opportunity, not just oh. to talk about the book that the National Endowment for the Arts, God love it, has arbitrarily chosen, not arbitrarily, the book of yours. <laughs> They've chosen yes. you, and they've hap they happen to have chosen this book. Um, I think it would start conversations just as interesting in a totally different way if they had chosen a book of your criticism. I, I kind of almost, without the William Carlos Williams part, see what this critic meant in that you are, among a million other things, an enthusiast when you write about poetry. Yeah. A fan would be another word. Um, are there poets that you, living or dead, that you don't especially like? Oh, absolutely. So who? Oh, yeah. And most, I mean, most of the poetry that's in the world, I, I doesn't really move me. I don't, you know, most, uh, in, in the science fiction world, this gets called Sturgeon's Law. Uh, yes. The, yeah, the, the, the great science fiction writer, Theodore Sturgeon, uh, when 
told or uh, you know berated with the the claim that you know ninety percent of science fiction is terrible. I'm using family friendly language. Uh, responded, and again, I'm using a family friendly paraphrase that ninety percent of everything is terrible, and that's not literally true. Uh, you know, ninety percent of uh, nurses trying to keep people alive during the epidemic are not terrible. Yeah. Um, 90% <laughs> of children are not terrible. Uh, but 90% of works of art are not very interesting. What percentage of poetry that is generally considered great do you consider terrible? Um, a low percentage because poetry that gets considered great is poetry that has meant a good deal to a fairly wide group of people over at the least a few decades and often centuries. Um, Auden said, many books are undeservedly forgotten. No books are undeservedly remembered. Um, now there are modern poets who are widely admired and certainly a number of contemporary poets who are widely admired, who I think are either sometimes overrated um, or in some cases, I think their influence is harmful. Oh, who are you thinking um, of? <laughs> <laughs> um, so a, a, an obvious example, and I should, one of the reasons that this came up recently is that a critic who I admire is a big fan of this poet. I like the criticism of Michael Robbins. Mm -hmm. I like Michael's most recent poetry. I don't really... I'm not a big fan of his earlier poetry, uh, but I like Michael Robbins as a critic very much. Uh, and he's a big fan of Frederick Seidel. Oh. About whom he's written. And uh, I don't think that that body of work is interesting or moving or uh, worth the time that it's taken up in contemporary American discourse about poetry. And would you ever take the time to say so in print or does that seem somehow a missed opportunity when you could be recommending something you love? So if I were asked, um, and I, I, I get this question a lot in theory and, and more rarely in practice, hmm. I don't go out of my way to write negative reviews. If I am asked by an assigning editor, to review a book of poetry that I think is kind of bad, hmm. I will say yes if the poetry is not only bad, but well-known and influential. Hmm. Yeah. And there's not some external reason to say no, some conflict of interest, or uh, I did once, I did once refuse to write what would have been a very negative review of a very well-known writer for, I'm just going to say personal reasons. Yeah, sure. What I mean about the writer. Um, but I, I think it's very important that we have some negative reviews mm -hmm. and that we have critics willing to explain in public what's wrong with a work or why an author has become a bad influence. Yeah. And I don't think that should be left, that kind of negative reviewing 
should be left as solely the province of people who get off on writing negative reviews. Right. Now, I'm such an admirer of your criticism that I, I wonder if I could ask, why do you think everybody wants to hear poetry aloud and nobody wants to hear prose aloud or, or nonfiction prose aloud? Uh, so I'm going to answer, but first I'm going to reject your premise. Oh, okay. People want to hear prose aloud all the time, especially now. People have audible subscriptions. Uh, you know, multiple writers read their work aloud for audiobooks. Uh, one of my favorite uh, contemporary fiction writers, Catherine Valente, mm -hmm. has been doing what I'm told is a you know, well-attended weekly read aloud of her work in progress. Uh, yeah, but that's fiction. That's storytelling. That's not... Yeah. So the question is, why don't people want to hear nonfiction prose read aloud? Mm -hmm. um, and the, the answer, again, there is that sometimes they do. Um, my, my family and I listened to Anthony Daniels's memoir. Uh, Anthony and Daniels, who played C-3PO? Yeah, which is a wonderful memoir mm -hmm. uh, on, on a long car ride. We've listened to part of Eddie Izzard's memoir. Um, people listen to uh, nonfiction history books mm -hmm. all the time. Um, I think the, when something isn't orally rich, when it's not like a piece of music, mm -hmm. it's much easier to follow it if there are either a lot of sound effects, like a podcast, yeah. or there's a narrative. When it's not sonically rich and it's not storytelling, because the energy in the writing is analytical and expository rather than narrative or lyrical and sonic, mm -hmm. um, what you want is not reading aloud, what you want is a podcast. What you want is a different audio form. And I listen to a lot of podcasts. I love podcasts. Uh, but it's, that's a little bit of a different animal. Do you, do you read your work, your prose, aloud to yourself as you compose it? No. I'm always telling my students to do that. And, and I've found that it helps. Um, but I suppose your music is so, so clear in your head, you don't need to. So... I honestly, I, three things. First, I do hear it in my head. I'm an oral mm -hmm. writer and I will change sentences around in just, you know, what's supposed to be workmanlike prose uh, for, you know, just to get this, the syllables to line up together. And something about the way I just said that sounds wrong. You know, I want to go back and write that. Um, and that was the bell that, that means uh, I should rewrite it apparently. And I'm sorry for that bell. <laughs> uh, I, as, a, as a quiz bowl champ I'm sure you've heard bells before I have heard bells before I have heard I've rung some bells uh, I didn't tell you I was a champ I just told you I did it also it's a team sport there are no individual champs sorry uh, it is though it's a team sport anyway uh, so yeah I do hear it in my head I do hear my prose in my head when I'm writing prose I also not infrequently write uh, when other people in my house are asleep and I don't want to wake them up. My house isn't that big. And I will say, because we haven't talked about it yet, that uh, uh, maybe sadly, a major influence on the way that I speak and the way that I write and the way that I live my life is college radio. Um, I, from 
probably about 19, late 1991 to early 1994, I spent a whole lot of my life uh, in a radio station, uh, pulling radio shows, trying to figure out how to do a perfect obscure rock music radio show, doing the shows, uh, trying to help other people be on the air and sound not terrible or great uh, or just hiding. (laughs) Um, And thinking a lot about how to interact with a world that included friends and acquaintances and strangers in a way that centered audio and centered the voice. And if you have very strong feelings about obscure music, that's not a bad way to live. It's even more not a bad way to live if you've already got friends who are doing that and if you're sort of nervous about putting yourself out there where people can see you because mm-hmm. you're trans and you're not out to yourself and your wardrobe consists of threadbare t-shirts. Uh, and you would prefer to interact with the world in a way that's pretty much audio. And you're very extroverted and you love teaching. Uh, college radio was very, very good for me. Uh, and I would like to be able to give more back to it than I'm able to do. Um, so start your podcast. What's taking you so long? Because podcasts uh, need podcasts. Podcasts are different from radio, uh, and podcasts need producers. Good podcasts are hard. Um, I can tell you my you know favorite. Uh, indie radio stations, and I can tell you my favorite podcasts, though. The radio station to which I owe uh, a somewhat alarming amount of my personality uh, is WHRB 95.3 FM in Cambridge, Mm -hmm. which has, when there's not a pandemic, uh, high-quality indie rock and post-punk programming on weekday nights, high-quality hip-hop programming on weekend nights, uh, and uh, very high-quality composed music programming. Um, an adventurous composed music programming, living composers and the like, not just you know famous masterworks um, in the afternoon and evening. And there's also, uh, there's a lot of jazz. Um, my other favorite radio stations, which are uh, indie stations that are currently on the air and broadcasting, uh, include WMBR 88.1 in Cambridge, uh, KCMP 89.3 The Current in Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, and Radio New Zealand, which has a series of podcasts that can be heard uh, outside New Zealand. And there are a number of very good poetry podcasts for people of various tastes and attention spans. There are a number that the Poetry Foundation and that The New Yorker runs. If you want a lot of pedagogical and educational poetry content at once, Uh, There are online courses that you can watch and listen to, although they're not always on podcast servers, uh, including Langdon Hammer's out of Yale and Al Philrice's out of the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, in terms of non-poetry, and I should also recommend if you're deeply into contemporary poetry, there are a number of 
lovely and long and very personal interviews on Rachel Zucker's podcast, Commonplace, and a number of other ones on a podcast called Verses with Finez Smith. How many um, hours a day are you awake? <laughs> me? Yes. Um, I mean, I haven't listened to every episode of these. These yeah. are things where I've listened to some of them. Uh, and in some cases, I've been on them, and I think they're well done and worth knowing about if you want poetry podcasts. Um, honestly, I'm getting more sleep now than I did before the pandemic because I don't have to get up when the kids have to go to school. Um, I have a very good routine. I uh, go to, usually I go to bed when my partner goes to bed and when the other people in their house go to bed, which is, you know, between 11 and 12 at night. And then I get up around one and I uh, talk to friends and write and do the dishes. And then I try to get back in bed uh, before 3.30 a.m. And then uh, we all sleep till 9.30 usually. <sighs> what do you miss? Yeah, it's eight hours of sleep. Okay. Um, you must be a very fast reader and listener and thinker. Um, Are you calling you, me fast? Are you calling me fast? <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you miss most about the outside world? In-person contact with my friends. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's not the only thing, mm -hmm. but that's the most important thing. Uh, you know, there are people who don't live in my house who I like holding hands with or being, you know, closer to than six feet away. And as I follow, which you're probably following, former Obama administration public health and emergency preparedness officials on Twitter, telling us what to expect, uh, it does look like, uh, I don't know that you're gonna be able to go see an LA Sparks game in person this summer, oh. uh, but at some point this summer, uh, we will all get to hang out with our friends. Well, I'm sorry you can't come to L.A. and hang out with us because... Oh, I can, just not right now. Oh, okay. Bring me later. Bring me in 2021. I miss every time I've been in L.A. I've had so much fun. Ah, well, what, what, what's been the... What's the most fun you ever had in Los Angeles that... that what do you remember? Um, so I got a bit of a... Um, whirlwind tour, uh, just a car tour one of the times I was there uh, from, um, uh, hang on. Um, of, of Los Angeles from one of your uh, precursors at the, the LA Times, uh, Carolyn. Oh. Uh, yeah, Carolyn Kellogg. Yeah, Carolyn Kellogg, um, who's I know is no longer there, uh, but I'm a I'm a big fan of Carolyn Kellogg. I'll tell her, uh, and also a fan of David Owen. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of that whole like what the book team as it was. I'm a fan of Joy and and uh, her team. Um, but uh, I remember being taken out for what I remember is extremely good uh, Count Mex food. Mm by Carolyn and, and, and part of her book team. Um, and I have very good memories of the LA Times Book Festival, which is very large, the, the largest book festival I've ever done. Um, and it's nice to do that and not be anything close to the main attraction. Um, to just be part of an event on that scale. And I remember being told by Carolyn and David and, and Joy and others 
that one of the great things about LA, and this is, is, it's even more true of LA than it is of the Twin Cities, is that because it is not a publishing town, it is a, a, a reading town. And it's full of people who are reading books, who are reading fiction and poetry and memoirs and essays because they want to. <laughs> not because they want a career in trade press publishing. Yeah. Um, and sort of the, uh, um, you know, conversely, people who are always talking about film in Minneapolis and St. Paul mm-hmm. are doing it because they're film buffs. Um, but the way that it was explained to me, and I've never lived there, so this just could be blown smoke, is that that's the relationship that Greater Los Angeles has to the written word. Mm. And I'd like to believe that's true. I, I sort of loved hearing it. Well, you certainly won't hear me contradicting it. And one has only to look out at Los Angeles, at least imaginatively, to see them all pouring over advice from the lights, thanks to... Aww. Thanks to the Cultural Affairs Department. I mean, let's give a shout out to the Department of Cultural Affairs, which put me up to this. Shout out. Dragon. Dragon? Dragon? What's Dragon? Dragon for the Cultural Affairs Department. Dragon for the Cultural Affairs Department. They'll be so pleased. Um, well, do you have any final words to, for people who are delving into your work for the first time in Los Angeles and want to get as much as possible out of it? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, first, thank you. <laughs> to you and to everybody involved, both at the NEA and in uh, the, the city of Los Angeles and the various library systems for doing this. Um, and I guess the other words about my work are, if you think you might like it and you don't like one thing, try the next thing. Mm-hmm. I am very conscious of writing different poems and different prose pieces for different audiences. And, uh, you know, Auden said, if you like a third of a book, it's a good book. <laughs> I've never and heard I that. Hope, I hope you like a third. It's in one of his prefaces to one of the Yale Younger Poets he picked. I forget which one. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope you like a third of my books. I hope you like <laughs> a third of my book. And I hope you, you know, don't stop with me. There's Laura Kaczynski, there's Terrence Hayes. There's so much out there. And of course, there are a lot of good comic books. <laughs> Well, speaking of comic books, not that they don't transcend all ages, one more thing. Um, a lot of our listeners and viewers today, um, especially since Cultural Affairs Department partners so closely with the schools, will be teenagers. Is yeah. there anything you would, you, you would address specifically to teenagers who are encountering you in, you in particular, poetry in general? Um, oh, yeah. First, hi. <laughs> uh, second, for a lot of a lot of you have been hearing that it gets better, especially if you're queer or trans or are part of some other group that doesn't get a fair shake. Uh, that's often true, uh, but you deserve better now, uh, and you can work to to get better, even if you can't fix everything at once. Um, I hope you like some of what I'm doing. I hope it's accessible. Um, and this is the most important thing about younger readers and listeners and viewers and high culture art forms. Poetry is not its institutions. Uh, There's 
a lot of kinds of poetry now that younger readers and viewers are encountering in audio or video form rather than on the page. When that kind of poetry began, it seemed like the rules were totally different from the rules for page-based poetry. That's no longer remotely true because there's so many people who've learned to do one and then succeeded at doing the other and, and hybridized it in both directions. Dinesh Smith being the most obvious of many examples. But don't let low prestige or distance from academic institutions or the fact that you're not going to you know, try to get an A by writing a paper on something stop you from committing to an art form or a work that you love. And don't let, conversely, don't let the fact that teachers place a high value on something or the fact that it's really old or high prestige prevent you from developing a personal relationship to something and loving it for the reasons that you love it. Uh, Paradise Regained and the Dark Phoenix Saga are both amazing and I love them for some of the same reasons. And I have different situations where I get to talk about them. Um, I'm afraid I've just picked examples that are notably white for an audience. <laughs> Uh, that contains, I hope, a lot of readers and viewers of color. Uh, so I could have talked about Langston Hughes' Montage of a Dream Deferred and uh, the new Dessa record, or what's an even better example, the music of Angel Hayes, which I'll never be an authority on. Uh, but it seems to me, actually, it seems to me that the, the music of Angel Hayes, who I love limitlessly, has a good deal in common with Paradise Regained in my head. Um, they're both about using terrific technical gifts and a very idiosyncratic commitment and inner strength to get through extremely difficult conditions and waiting for your enemies to exhaust themselves so you can survive and go on to the beautiful next thing that you're supposed to do. Mm. It's possible that I'm the only person uh, on earth who uh, loves Angel Hayes and Paradise Regained a lot and equally, but I love them both so much. And I hope, especially if you're not used to seeing art forms juxtaposed in that way, and you think of some art forms as classroom blah stuff, and some art forms as you know, teachers will never understand, that you can get to a place where what matters is how you and maybe your friends relate to a work of art that you love. Well, poetry and music and all the art forms you love could not ask for a better evangelist. Uh, Stephanie Burt, <laughs> thank you so you much. Ask. You can always ask. <laughs> um, Thank you very much. Congratulations for your place now in the hearts and on the bookshelves of Angelinos from one side of town to the other. Uh -huh. And the LA Times Book Festival is at least tentatively rescheduled for October. I hope you can come out one way or another. Um, Ooh, 
it would be, I mean, I, I, as a critic at large and not an editor or full-timer at the LA Times, am not empowered to extend that invitation personally, but um, I dare say you'd have a good time. And, um, and I'd do my damnedest to give you a tour, almost if not quite as good as Carolyn's. Thank you, Stephanie, so uh, much. Thank you, this was so much fun. And we have to show you Libros Fibros. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, I can tell by the way your outline interacts with the backdrop that you're not physically there. It's always in my heart. Of course. I will see it as soon as that becomes practical. Uh, and let's hang out some more. It's a date. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you. So ends another episode of Libro Schmibros, recorded at the bilingual nonprofit Libro Schmibros Lending Library in Boyle Heights. By all means, follow us online in all the old familiar places or email us via info at libroschmibros.org. By the way, we couldn't do this podcast without the whole Libros team, Guatemoc, Colleen, Diana, and Alberto. And all of them would kill me if I didn't add this. Please consider visiting libroschmibros.org, hitting the donut button, <laughs> the donate button, and giving us a gift. We put good free books into people's hands five days a week here at Libros, right across from Mariachi Plaza, up in the old Boyle Hotel. I'm David Kippen, and there'll always be a free book for you, and thousands more to borrow here at Libros Schmibros. <laughs>